here speak of Jesus Christ. Verse 13 sums up the burnt offering. Then the priest shall bring it all and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Understand the average nose can pick out about 2,000 smells. If you have an above average sniffer, then you can discern about 4,000 smells. What are your favorite smells? I love honeysuckle on the vine. I love the smell of meat barbecuing over an open fire. Or the new leather of a baseball glove. Women tend to like perfumes and flowers. I saw a sign once at a florist shop that read, Bring flowers home to your wife. She must be mad at you for something. (laughs) But what about God's favorite smells? Guys, God loves the aroma of a sacrifice. You and I no longer come to the tabernacle and make sacrifices of bulls and goats to the Lord. We are trusting in Jesus Christ as our once and for all sacrifice. But we are told in Romans 12 verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they offered dead sacrifices. Today, we offer living sacrifices. We give our bodies to the Lord. We give our minds to the Lord. We give ourselves to the Lord as a sacrifice. It reminds me of the little boy who was sitting at the end of the church pew as the offering plate was being passed. He took the plate, he laid it on the floor next to the pew, and he got out of his seat and he walked over and stood in the offering plate. Of course, his dad was embarrassed and he said, Son, what are you doing? And the little boy told him, said, Dad, we learned in Sunday school that we're supposed to give ourselves to God. (laughs) God is pleased when we give him our arms and our legs, our minds and our muscle, our ears and our eyes. The key, though, is in verse 13. The priest shall bring it all. God wants all of us. Not just part and parcel. It's been said, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not really Lord at all. All of the burnt offering was brought and laid upon the altar. Scientists at Illinois Tech have found that the average person gives off at least 36 different odors. You knew that your husband was a smeller. Now you, now you know it's been proven scientifically. Add together all the combinations and your body gives off about a hundred different odors. The researchers at Illinois Tech are developing ways of identifying people by smell. They call them scent prints. Hey, if God were to take your scent print, would he be pleased? Would he consider your life a sweet aroma? Is your life a living sacrifice for Jesus Christ? The grain offering was the only bloodless sacrifice. It spoke of service rather than forgiveness of sin. Our good works, our charitable deeds are impotent to save us. 
It's been said being good will keep you out of jail, but it won't keep you out of hell. Salvation is the result of a blood sacrifice, not a grain offering. And yet, once we're forgiven, we'll want to serve the Lord. The desire of our heart will be to present the first fruits of our labor, the work of our hands to the Lord as a sacrifice. But notice the grain offering is prepared with oil in three ways. It could either be fried in the oil, or I'm sorry, with the oil, or it could be mixed in oil and baked, or it could be cooked, then covered with oil. The symbolism is significant. Oil in the Bible is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And there are three experiences that we can have with the Holy Spirit. He is with us before we are saved. We are, in essence, frying with the oil. But then when we come to Christ, He comes to dwell in us. The oil is mixed in with the grain. But there's still another experience we can have with Him. Even after we're saved, the Holy Spirit wants to anoint us or be poured out upon us. He wants to come upon you and upon me and empower us. He wants to come upon us with the baptism, the power, the infilling of the Holy Spirit. The oil is poured out upon the grain. Guys, whenever we serve in Jesus' name, God wants us to do so under the influence and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Zechariah says, it's not by might nor by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. For God to accept Our grain offerings of good works, they need to be simmered and saturated with the oil of the Holy Spirit. The peace offering spoke of fellowship and communion with the Lord. All the burnt offering was sacrificed to God, but the peace offering, only the fat was laid on the altar. In Scripture, fat is a symbol of abundance. (laughs) Hey, in Scripture, fat is a good thing. If you've got some, rejoice. The fat symbolized the abundance. What do you do with your abundance? Do you lay it on the altar? Hey, God knows you have a demanding job. God knows you have to work long hours. God knows you have bills to pay. But what about the abundance of your time and your effort and your money? We're told in chapter 3, verse 14, all the fat is the Lord's. Are you willing to take the surplus of your life and spend it on the Lord? Does the Lord possess your fat, your extra? The peace offering was the only sacrifice that the person making the offering could actually eat it. In fact, it was sliced three ways. The offerer ate a portion, the priest ate a portion... And the fat was offered to the Lord. It was a symbol of fellowship, of communion, of the priest, of God, and of the offerer, all in harmony and in fellowship with each other. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 7 tells us, The trespass offering is like the sin offering. There is one law for them both. The sin offering and the trespass offering were very similar. The Hebrew word translated sin 
means to miss the mark. We sin when we try to please God but fall short. Whereas a trespass is a deliberate act of defiance or rebellion. We trespass when we cross a boundary that God has established. In chapters 5 and 6, it seems that the trespass offerings were associated with crimes against other people. Along with the sacrifice, restitution had to be paid to the victim. It was not enough to simply gain God's forgiveness. The damage also had to be repaired. When you couple the first sacrifice, the burnt offering, and these last two similar sacrifices, the sin and trespass offering, you get a picture, a wonderful picture, of the work of Jesus. You see, the cross has an effect in heaven and on earth. In heaven, the sacrifice of Jesus satisfies the demands of a holy God. It is a sweet aroma to the Lord. It gains for us God's acceptance. But on earth, His sacrifice cleanses the heart of a wretched sinner. You see, it's both effectual in our hearts, but judicial at the bar of God. It pleases God, the burnt offering, but it cleanses sin, the sin and trespass offering. The work of Jesus makes you right with God eternally, but it also makes your heart righteous internally. Chapter 8 describes the dedication of the high priest and his sons. There were six steps here besides the offerings that were made. First, they washed with water. You might just jot these down. Second, they put on their priestly garments. Third, they were anointed with oil. Fourth, their right ear, right thumb, and right toe were dipped in blood. Fifth, they ate the priestly portion of the sacrifice. And sixth, they waited at the door of the tabernacle. Note the priests are dedicated to administer the sacrifices. But before they begin, they are required to eat of the sacrifices. I find that interesting. You see, the New Testament calls us a royal priesthood. And we've been called by God to share the love of Jesus Christ with a needy world. But first, before we share it with others, we need to make sure that we have fed upon God's love and grace in our own hearts. Before you administer the sacrifice, you first must partake of the sacrifice. We've got too many people running around talking about God who don't even know God. Who've never fed on Him personally. Who don't actually have a personal relationship with Him. These six steps that were involved in the dedication of the priest are also similar to the six steps that we need to follow to live a victorious Christian life. Think of it this way. Number one, we are to wash our minds with the water of God's Word. Study your Bible. It will build up your faith. Number two, we need to put on Christ, our priestly garments. We need to see ourselves in Christ. Number three, we need to be anointed with the oil of the Holy Spirit. Number four, we need to dedicate our ear to hear God's Word. Our thumb to do God's will, our toe to walk in God's ways. 
Number five, we need to feed on fellowship with God. And number six, we need to learn to wait and spend time with God. Hey, follow these six steps. You be a dedicated priest of Jesus Christ. And you'll be a true overcomer. And you will walk in victory. In chapter 8, verse 8, there's an interesting detail about the priestly garments. We're told Moses put the Urim and the Thummim in the breastplate. The words literally mean lights and perfections. What they were, we are not sure. But by using them, the priest was able to discern the will of God. Some people believe they were stones that acted as prisms. And the light of God literally guided the people. Reminds me, though, of the snotty seminarian who wanted to show up the old preacher. The old guy had never been to seminary. And the youngster sort of looked down his nose at the older preacher. He went to him one day and he said, you can't even explain the Urim and the Thummim. Well, the wise old pastor responded, son, you're right. As a matter of fact, nobody can. We know they were a means to discovering God's will, but nobody really knows what they represent. But then the preacher added some needed advice. He says, and yet the words Urim and Thummim help me every day. To discern God's will. I just change the R in Urim to an S. And then I take the pages of my Bible. And I use them and thumb them. And that leads me into the will of God. (laughs) We may not have the Urim and the Thummim. But if you want to know God's will. Take your Bible. The pages of this book. And use them and thumb them. And it will lead you in the right direction. In chapter 9, the priests begin their ministry. And as you read through these sacrifices, keep in mind that a bull holds about three gallons of blood. That was the volume of blood that was sprinkled on the altar. Imagine the volume of all the sacrifices. Year in and year out, over time, that were sprinkled upon that altar. The sacrifices that were offered every day for 1,500 years, certainly the brazen altar was blood-stained. Look what happens in chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. We're told, And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. God comes to the barbecue. Fire falls from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. This is not a bad first day for the priests. It's interesting, three times in Scripture, God dedicates a house of worship, and each time, He fires up the sacrifice. All this happens again when Solomon dedicates the temple. And it happens in the New Testament temple, the church, when it's dedicated. You remember in Acts chapter 2, tongues of fire appear over the heads of the living sacrifices, the disciples. Each time a temple is dedicated, 
God sends fire down from heaven upon the sacrifice, and in our case, the living sacrifices of followers of Jesus. Now, in Leviticus chapter 10, two of the priests, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they get burned. Have you ever gotten burned? Not just with matches. But have you ever gotten burned? Here's a few ways that it can happen. Risk your retirement fund on penny stocks. You can get burned. Back talk a mother-in-law at the wedding rehearsal. You'll get burned. Bet the house on the Hawks winning the NBA finals. You'll get burned. Live a sexually promiscuous life, you'll get burned. Marry an unbeliever, boy, will you get burned. Give your kids everything but your time, you'll get burned. Ignore your Bible, perhaps the best way I know to get burned. And finally, trust in people rather than trusting in God. That's another way to get burned. In chapter 10, verse 1, the sons of Aaron literally got burned. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Nadab and Abihu become crispy critters. This is why priests are sometimes called friars. (laughs) Oh, boy. Moses tells us that these priests got burned because they offered profane or strange fire. Now, exactly what this was, we're not sure. There are different theories. Some believe that they entered the Holy of Holies, which was off limits to anyone but the high priest. Others believe that they got the fire from a source other than the brazen altar. It could have been a matter of timing, maybe the right act at the wrong time. It wasn't the proper day. It could have been the right act done with the wrong motive. Perhaps they did it out of jealousy. Oh, if Moses and Aaron can go in, so can we. Maybe it was out of pride. Maybe they did it with a tinge of self-glory. Since verse 9, which follows prohibits the priest from drinking wine while offering the sacrifices. Some people believe that they were drunk when they entered into the presence of the Lord. But here's what we do know happened. Nadab and Abihu had just witnessed the tabernacle's dedication and the awesome manifestation of God. Moses and Aaron go into the Lord. Fire falls from heaven. Talk about excitement. Talk about exhilaration. Talk about revival. These guys are fired up, literally. They're on fire for God before they're on fire from God. (laughs) They're fired up and they want in on the action. And so they rush in before the Lord 
in a profane manner. Guys, this can happen to us. We can get so caught up in the emotion of the moment that we stop thinking. We can get so caught up in our emotions that we end up worshiping God in ways that does not please God. You see, it's not enough to worship God. We need to worship Him in ways that He wants to be worshipped. And we can get so caught up in the emotion that we end up worshiping Him in ways that actually displease Him. This often happens in charismatic circles. Well-meaning folks get worked up into an emotional frenzy. And then they approach God in unbiblical ways. Sometimes from ungodly motives. Profane fire. Guys, you can be fired up for God to a fault. Just ask Nadab and Abihu. Which brings us to chapter 11. Did you hear about the man that was in desperate financial straits? And he wanted to play Bible roulette. He was seeking wisdom from God. And so he opened his Bible, you know, pointed to a spot on the page. And he looked down and he thought, now I'm going to find guidance for my financial problems. He looked down and his finger was pointing at the words, chapter 11. Uh Uh-oh. As we've said before, Bible roulette is never a good idea. Here we are in chapter 11. The Lord teaches Moses and Aaron how to differentiate between clean and unclean animals. The clean animals are chud... I can't say that. Cud chewers. I was going to say chud chewers, but cud chewers. They also had split hooves. The unclean animals were those who had neither trait or else had one or the other traits, but not both. Only the clean animals were to be eaten or sacrificed. Remember God's promise to Israel back in Exodus fifteen twenty six. If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. The dietary laws were God's fulfillment of that promise. God eliminated from the Hebrew diet meat of carnivores, which are prone to carry parasites and disease. He did this for their well-being, to keep them from transferring disease. Keeping kosher protected the Hebrews from types of illnesses and bacterias that plagued the Gentile nations. In the Middle Ages, when the bubonic plague swept Europe, only the Jews were those who escaped its suffering. This is why the people accused the Jews of poisoning the rivers and the streams. They were the only ones that seemed immune to the plague. But their immunity came from their hygiene and from the dietary stipulations that were given to them by God in the law of Moses. It's interesting that even today, the nation Israel has one of the longest average lifespans of any other nation. And it's because of the good diet that they keep when they keep kosher and they obey the law. I think, too, God instituted this notion of clean and unclean 
for spiritual reasons as well. Man is a consumer by nature. We consume things physically, but we also consume things spiritually. We feed our bodies and we also feed our souls. And just as some of the foods of the Israelites, some of the foods that they ate were deemed clean and some were deemed unclean, likewise, some of the movies and music and books that you feed your soul on can be deemed clean or unclean. You see, the old computer adage is true. Garbage in, garbage out. If you take in trash, you'll end up trash. The health food advocate says you are what you eat. That's why my friends call me Twinkie. But the truth also applies to us spiritually as well as physically. Moses taught the Hebrews that if they ate an unclean food or touched an unclean object, it made them unclean and thus unfit for worship or the service of God. The same truth applies to us. Consume unclean material or dwell in contact with unclean stimulus and you become unclean or unfit for the worship and service of God. Don't be like the guy who complained that there was too much sex and violence on his VCR. You can take control over what you take in. You can control your diet physically. You can control it spiritually. If you want to be useful and effective for God, you need to set yourself apart unto Him. Reserve your mind and your soul for His input, for His influence. The key verse in chapter 11 is verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore sanctify yourself, set yourselves apart, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. (laughs) Chapter 13 and 14 deal with the dreaded disease known as leprosy, the AIDS of the ancient world. Leprosy literally ate away a person's flesh. (coughs) Middle East missionary William Thompson once reported, As I approached Jerusalem, I was startled by the sudden sight of beggars without eyes, without nose, without hair, without everything. They held out their handless arms. Unearthly sounds gurgled from throats without palates. In a word, I was horrified. There are two types of leprosy. Tuberculoid leprosy was the benign form. It lasted for a couple of years and then it went away. But lepromatus was malignant, highly contagious. And apart from an act of God, there was no known cure. Both diseases began with a white or red patch on the skin. The sore soon became ulcerated and spread. The soft tissues began to deteriorate. Appendages were literally eaten away. Leprosy numbs the nerve endings, and thus the leper could accidentally stick his hand in the fire and never known that it was being burned up because he couldn't feel it. Lepers were called the walking dead. It was a horrible disease. In ancient times, because of the highly contagious nature of the disease, 
lepers were isolated from the rest of the camp. And so being isolated, they lost their families. They lost their businesses. They lost their friends. Look at chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare. And he shall cover his mustache and say, unclean, unclean. He shall be unclean. All the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. If another person approached a leper, it was the leper's responsibility to ward him off. Imagine the psychological effects of replacing in your vocabulary the word hello with the word unclean. Rather than, ha, unclean, unclean, you'd get a little different reaction, wouldn't you? Imagine the effect on a person's psyche. You greet people, they flee to the other side of the street. That's tough. And this is why the diagnosis for leprosy was so important. And chapter 13 lays out the diagnostic procedures for the various appearances of the disease. The other aspect of leprosy that needs to be mentioned is its similarities to sin. Leprosy is to the outer man what sin is to the inner man. Here's a a list of similarities. It's loathsome and ugly. It begins imperceptibly, so does sin. It's progressive. And sin leads from one thing into another. It creates a callous and insensitivity, so does sin. It stifles fellowship. It spreads to others. It's curable only by a miracle from God. Its healing is pronounced by the priest, and in sin's case, our great high priest, Jesus Christ. While on earth, Jesus often healed the leper. It demonstrated his power both over the disease and the sin that has brought all disease into the world. Today, leprosy is called Hansen's disease. It was named after the Norwegian doctor who discovered the bacillus that causes it, And the good news is that we can now treat it medically. Chapters 12 and 15 deal with laws concerning bodily discharges. Everything from an emission of semen to a woman's menstrual flow to the delivery of a child. Each discharge should be followed by a rinse or a wash And again, this was God's way of protecting his people from the transmission of infection and disease. Understand, the existence of germs and bacteria were unknown prior to the 1800s. Doctors had no idea how diseases were transmitted. It was not uncommon for a doctor to go from patient to patient in the hospital having never washed his hands. Surgeons thought the bloodier the better, and they would often walk into rooms wearing blood-splattered clothes in order to impress their patients. Before the 1800s, the hospital itself posed the greatest threat to the health of the patient. Today, though, we understand 
how these diseases spread. We emphasize sanitation and sterilization, and yet it's still amazing how dumb people can be. The American Society for Microbiology did a study on the hand-washing habits of Americans. They observed 6,333 men and women in restrooms in five major U.S. cities. As a matter of fact, they were at a Braves game. And they found that only 64% of the restroom patrons washed their hands after going to the toilet. Be careful who you give a high five to at Turner Field. Even though it's not always practiced, the researchers insisted that simple hand washing is still the most important means against spreading disease and infection. And it's interesting to me that God told us that before microbiology was ever an ology. One other point needs to be made here. Notice in verse 5, chapter 15, verse 18, it says, When a woman lies with a man and there is an emission of semen, they shall bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Now here we have an example of normal, healthy, even sacred sexual relations between a husband and a wife. And yet the couple is considered unclean until evening. Here is what's important in our study of the Mosaic Law. It's important at this point that we not confuse ceremonial uncleanness with moral uncleanness. There is nothing, nothing immoral, nothing morally wrong with a husband and a wife having sexual relations. Hebrews 13.4 tells us that the marriage bed is undefiled. The Song of Solomon is a celebration of the marriage bed. But ceremonially, the act produces a temporary uncleanness. You see, moral verdicts of clean or unclean were based on the good or evil intrinsic to the activity. But ceremonial verdicts were based on symbolism. Nothing is immoral about marital sex. But when the Hebrews thought of human reproduction, God wanted them to recall the sin that had poisoned the fountain of life. We are born into sin. And so God chose that each time that transmission of life takes place, man should remember the sin that is passed down from birth to birth. See, ceremonially, they were unclean. Morally, they were clean. Morally, it was good. But ceremonially, they were considered unclean at least long enough for them to grasp the spiritual connotation. Understand the difference between moral cleanness and ceremonial cleanness. A lot of things are mor- were morally right but we're ceremonially wrong. All symbolism. God loves symbols. And God paints pictures. And when God uses symbols and paints a picture, He wants us to grasp its meaning. I love cliches. As a matter of fact, I'm a connoisseur of cliches. And it's amazing how many cliches you use every day that actually have their origin in the Bible. For example... 
escaped by the skin of my teeth. Did you know that comes from Job 19, verse 20? A drop in the bucket, Isaiah 40, 15. Whiter than snow, Psalm 51, 7. Harder than a rock, Jeremiah 5, verse 3. Blind leads the blind. That was Zach and I the other day working on our car. Matthew 15, verse 14. Rise and shine. Isaiah 60, verse 1. Fuel to the fire. Ezekiel 21, 32. Hole in the wall. Ezekiel 8, verse 7. And catch my breath. That's from Job 9, verse 18. And here in Leviticus chapter 16, another cliche appears. The word scapegoat. And how many times have you heard someone say, I was made the scapegoat. Verse 34 of chapter 16 tells us, This shall be an everlasting statute for you, to make atonement for the children of Israel, for all their sins once a year. On the Hebrew calendar, one day stood out as the most important day of the year. It was the day of atonement. It was the one day each year that the high priest could go behind the veil into the tabernacles, holy of holies. It was the one occasion when man was allowed to enter God's presence and make atonement for his sin. On that special day, the high priest would take two kid goats to the entrance of the tabernacle. There he would cast lots over them. One goat was selected for the sacrifice. You might say, the Lord got his goat. The other goat became the scapegoat. After slaughtering the sacrifice, the high priest took fire off the altar. He used the coals and he put them in a censer and he burned incense. And as the smoke rose and formed a cloud, it shielded him from the full brunt of God's glory as he entered the Holy of Holies. We're told in verse 13 that without the smoke, he would have died. It acted as sort of sunglasses for him, blocking the intense glory of God. His holiness would have burned him up had he not shielded himself with the smoke. In the Holy of Holies, his job was to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the lid of the ark, the mercy seat. And as the priest worked inside, the people waited outside with eager anticipation When he finally appeared, it was proof to them that God had accepted their sacrifice. The whole congregation of Israel would breathe a collective sigh of relief. The people were assured that their sin had been forgiven for another year. But then the priest would take the scapegoat and he would lay his hands on its head and he would confess over it all of the sins of the past year. And he would then take that goat and send it out by a man to let it loose in the wilderness. In later years, it was let out a Sabbath day's distance, then turned loose. Still later, it was taken out 12 miles and then turned loose. Even later, the goat was led over a cliff to its death. Jewish tradition says that a crimson sash was tied to the tabernacle door. And after the goat was led away, it turned white, a symbol of God's pardon. It's interesting that according to the Midrash, that for 40 years after the Jews rejected Jesus, the ribbon stayed red. 
You see, when they crucified Jesus, they had rejected God's only provision for sin. Verse 22 tells us, The goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. See, it was the scapegoat, not the scape lamb, because a goat would wander away, never to return. In other words, the nation's sin was not only forgiven, but it was also forgotten. It all reminds me of the pastor who was tormented by a past indiscretion. It had occurred early in his ministry. No one knew about it but himself. He had confessed his sin countless times, but he could never really rid his conscience of this evil thing he had done. At the time, there was a spiritual lady in the church, and she was always talking about how God was speaking to her. Oh, God told me this. God told me that. And the pastor thought this was a little presumptuous for someone to be claiming that God's speaking to them all the time. And so one day he decided to put the lady in her place. She made the comment that God had told her this and that. And the pastor said, look, if God speaks to you, why don't you ask him to reveal to you the sin I committed early in my ministry? If you can come back to me with that information, then I'll believe God speaks to you. Well, the woman said, okay. She began to pray about it. A few weeks later, the pastor approached her. And he snapped at her. Tell me, has God given you the answer? Has he told you? And she responded, no, he hasn't told me. As a matter of fact, God's told me that he doesn't remember it anymore. Jesus is not just our sacrifice. He's our scapegoat. He doesn't just forgive us, guys. He forgets it. Your problem is you keep bringing it up. He doesn't. You keep remembering it. You keep dwelling on it. God has forgotten it. What God forgives, He forgets. It's about time you did too. I love Psalm 103, verse 12. It says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Notice He says, As far as the east is from the west, not as far as the north is from the south. Because you can go north to a point and you'll start going south again. But you can go east. Forever. And that's how far God has taken your sins away. Forever. He's forgotten them. It's time you gave it up. And you trusted in Jesus. Chapter 17 tells us that whenever a Hebrew killed an animal for food, it first should be sacrificed to God. In other words, worship always preceded a meal. And this is similar to what we do when we pray before our meals. We're following the Old Testament pattern. We offer a sacrifice to God, then we eat our food. Which reminds me of the husband who was describing his wife's cooking. He says, my wife treats me like a god. Every night at dinner, she presents me with a burnt offering. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 17 verse 14 forbids the eating of blood. And this is why the Roman Catholic doctrine of communion is unbiblical. 
When Jesus said, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, he was speaking figuratively, not literally. For if he had meant it literally, he would have been breaking the law of Moses. And Jesus didn't come to break the law. He came to fulfill it. Chapter 18 deals with sexual and moral laws. Understand Egypt and Canaan, where they had left and where they were headed, were sexually permissive places. And God warns his people, he wants them to be different. He wants them to live holy lives. He wants them to live within the safety of God's boundaries. Guys, the reason God gave the law to his people is not because he was trying to rob them of their fun. He was trying to protect them. He was putting a hedge about them so that they would be protected from harmful influences. Don't resist God's laws. Love them. Obey them. They're for your own good. Verses 6 through 17 of chapter 18 define and forbid incest. Verse 21 is a reference to the worship of Molech. We're told, you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech. The Canaanites worshipped an idol with the face of an ox and body of a man, Molech was the god of fertility. And an offspring of their sexual pleasure, a child, was often offered as a sacrifice to Molech. The idol itself was a hollowed-out form. It was hollowed out. It was made out of brass. And Molech was standing there with his hands out like this. And what the priests of Molech would do is they would pump it with wood and they would set it on fire until the metal became extremely hot and began to glow. And then they would bring their babies. And they would lay those babies in the outstretched arms of Molech. And they would literally sit there and sacrifice their babies and watch their babies burn to death in the arms of Molech. And the priests would beat their drums loudly in order to drown out the baby's screams. Man, we think of that. Human infant sacrifice. It sounds so barbaric. So far removed from us moderns. Until we take an honest look at the abortion industry today. Are we not sacrificing our unborn to the God of sexual pleasure? And then are we not allowing a liberal media to beat their drums in order to drown out the silent screams of those babies? It's a travesty. We're repeating the sin of Molech. We want the pleasures of sex without its responsibilities. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22 says clearly, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. The word abomination means disgusting or revolting. Guys, the Bible is not ambiguous here. Hey, there is no confusion with God on this issue. Homosexuality is not merely a sin, but an abomination in the sight of God. God loves the sinner. And that includes the homosexual. But God hates the sin. And if a homosexual wants to know God, he or she has to repent 
of their sinful lifestyle, just like a heterosexual needs to repent of whatever sins they happen to be committing. But homosexual behavior is disgusting. It's revolting. It's an abomination in the sight of the Lord. Don't you get confused about the issue. God certainly isn't. Verse 23 condemns another perversion, bestiality. Hey, when sex is no longer considered sacred, when it's no longer viewed by the society as a gift from God, when it's considered simply an instinctive, animalistic act, then anything goes. Unimaginable perversions result. And it's all being repeated again on the Internet. And let me warn you, Stay off of those sites that have this kind of material. They're out there, and it's tragic. And we need to guard ourselves. We need to set up safeguards. We need to block things the best that we can, and then we need to be accountable. We need to put that computer out where people can see it, where people are walking by us. We need to be careful lest we get sucked in to some sexual perversion, and we need to be extremely careful with our kids and their involvement on the Internet. In chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, God devises an extremely wise welfare system. You see, when the Hebrews enter the land and they begin to harvest their fields, they aren't to go over every inch with a fine-tooth comb In other words, they should leave behind a little for the poor and needy. But it's interesting. The poor are required to go out into the field and pick up the leftovers. It's not going to get brought to them. they got to go out and get it. They've got to work for it. The welfare system God institutes is not a gimme system. It's an opportunity where people can get out and can glean from the fields and take the extra, and it'll be enough for their needs and their family. Some of the laws in chapter 19 that sound so strange to us, they target specific Canaanite practices that were related to idolatry. For example, the Canaanites ate the initial harvest of their fruit as a sacrifice to their idols. And that's why in verses 23 and 24, God forbids the Hebrews from eating the fruit until the fourth year they are in the land. He doesn't want their eating of the fruit to be viewed as a sacrifice to idols. Verses 27 and 28 talk about the way the Canaanites shaved their hair and their beards, even cutting marks that they made in their flesh, even tattoos. And again, these were all related to the paganism and the idolatry that were going on in the land of Canaan. And thus it would have been wrong For a Hebrew to go down to a Canaanite hair salon or to a Canaanite tattoo parlor and get a new do or a new too. But weird hair and tattoos are not necessarily wrong for us today. Now, let me clarify this point. I'm not suggesting that tattoos are a good idea. Especially if you're a teenager living under my roof. (laughs) 
Tattoos have a definite downside. But I can't, as much as I would like to, I can't stretch these verses and make them apply to us today, (laughs) as much as I would like to. Hey, if you want a tattoo, just keep praying about it. And when you start paying your own bills and get your own job, then at that point, then you do as the Lord leads you to do. But remember, they don't wash off. They never wash off. Verse 26 forbids any form of divination. And divination is any attempt to link up with the spiritual realm through a means apart from the direct communication with God and with His Word. Ouija boards, horoscopes, palm readers, New Age channelers, seances, crystal balls, imaging, psychic healing, fortune cookies, are all elements of the occult. And they're forbidden by God. Participate in these practices and you invite Satan's deceptions into your life. You invite Satan to use his deceptions on you. I don't want that. You don't want that. Verse 31 forbids consulting a medium. Any attempt at communicating with the dead is forbidden. You see, what you think is the dead person is actually a demon. And Satan will trick you and he will lead you astray if you consult a medium. Reminds me of the time I was witnessing to a fortune teller and she started laughing at me. And I wasn't going to take it. And so I just reared back and I just punched her right in the mouth. Of course, I got arrested. And I was brought before the judge, and when the judge asked me to explain my actions, I told him, I said, well, judge, I said, my daddy always told me, said, always needed to strike a happy medium. (laughs) Well, that was bad. I admit that was bad. Verse 32 tells the Hebrews to respect the elderly. Advice we should also heed. Verses 33 and 34, hospitality to strangers. Verses 35 to 36 mandates honest and fair business practices. Chapter 20 dishes out the penalties for the sins listed back in chapters 18 and 19. Idolatry, occultism, cursing one's parents... Adultery, incest, homosexuality, bestiality were all punishable by death in ancient Israel. Now understand, under the old covenant, there was no power to transform a person's life. The law provided an external standard, but it affected no internal change. And this was why the incorrigible was eliminated from the camp. All he or she could ever become was a bad influence. But under the new covenant, there is hope for change. Jesus writes his law on our hearts. He transforms us from the inside out. And so even the worst sinner, the most callous sinner, is not beyond the reach of God's mercy and his grace. 
in the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. The cure for sin under the new covenant is not elimination, but salvation. Isn't that glorious? I love 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Hey, under the old covenant, that was the list that was taken out and stoned. But then Paul says, And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Be thankful. You were born in the age of grace. That you were born in a day when you could hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Where you could receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Where there was the potential for you to become a new person. Oh, thank God daily. You were born at the right time. Tonight's section ends with chapters 21 and 22. Codes of conduct for the priests. And most of these stipulations are not so much moral, again, as they are ceremonial. The priest should have no contact with death. He represents the God of the living. He's to marry only a virgin. The people are to remain pure and unfaithful to God. He's to possess no physical deformities as well as the sacrifices he offers. And whenever God's people come to God, they should always present their best. All these stipulations have an application for us. We are alive in Christ. We are his virgin bride. And when we come to the Lord, we should never offer a lame or a skimpy offering. We should always give him the best of our time, our energy, our focus, our attention. And that wraps up first 22 chapters of the book of Leviticus. Next week, we're going to talk about holy days. You and I call them holidays, but they really need to be holy days. And we're going to talk about that next week. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to hide these words in our heart that we might not sin against you. In Jesus' name, amen.